Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. All right, John chapter 14. I'm very excited about uh, some of the things that we're going to be studying and working on as we go into uh, to the fall for these Sunday services for probably the next few months at least. Uh, we're going to be doing a study on Jesus, and we're really going to dig very deep into the life of Jesus, who he was. We're going to look at different attributes of Jesus, his eyes, his, his heart, his ears, his feet, his hands, and really seeing what, what was he all about. You know, last week we looked at why Jesus, so I think we have an understanding of, of, of why we have a Savior, but we really need to dig in and take a look at his life in a much closer way. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to build on that foundation of why Jesus. And today we're going to simply talk about who is this Jesus? Now, we all think we know who Jesus is, right? Because we have a Bible and we read through it and it tells us who Jesus was. But do we really know, do we really understand that life of Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Now, that was a really important question back in the first century. Because he was literally walking around doing things, saying things, performing miracles, creating quite a ruckus amongst the Jews. And so that question was, who is this guy? And so, yeah, today we have our Bibles and we're, we're very familiar with Jesus. But do we really know Jesus well enough to say, hey, I'm following in his steps. What he does, how he thinks, his heart, his hands, his mind, his feet. Am I really emulating and, and imitating this life of Christ, how much do we really know? And I believe that the more we study and the more we learn and the more we apply, then the better position we're going to be for the Holy Spirit to not only make us more aware of Jesus, but more important than that, transform us into the image of Christ. That's our goal as disciples. We want to be, when people see us, we want them to see Jesus. Yes, they'll see Rick. Yes, they'll see Garth. They'll see Octavia. They'll see Carl. But as they dig a little deeper, they're going to say, you know what? I see something in you a little different. There's something about your makeup, your character, your morals, your life, your integrity. What is it? And then we say, however you say it, well, it's not really me you see. It's Jesus shining through me. That's our goal. That's where we want to get to. So, Lord willing, that's what's going to happen as we go through these next few months. The Bible, more specifically the, the New Testament, is a gold mine for knowing who Jesus is. It's like, it's the story of his life. It's like a photo album. You know, when you look through a photo album, if any of you have photo albums from your family, you look back and you say, oh my gosh, look at there's, you know, there's Zachary when he was two, you know, and there's, you know, there's, Ryan, when he was, you know, five, I mean, we, we look back and it's like, oh, we can, we can count the years and we have all these memories. The Bible is a photo album of Jesus. I mean, you just go through and it just, it clearly paints this picture of who he was, how he lived, why he was here. And you know what? It's really important that we know the story. That's why we like photo albums. It's like, oh my gosh, there's like the story of my family. The Bible gives us that picture. We need to know the story. 
1 John 2, 6, a scripture we all know. Whoever claims to live in him must walk, or if you have a newer version, must live as Jesus lived, right? So if we make that claim, we've got to be able to do that. You won't even be able to take that first step unless you really know who Jesus is. How can you follow somebody you don't really know? You've got to know the story. And only when that story is written on your heart, clearly, that the real walking begins. And it's only when you begin to, to, to embark on that walk with true sincerity and in a very genuine way that the transformation really begins in your life. So it's very important. So who is this Jesus? Well, we know he has some very strong opinions of himself, and that's not a bad thing. He was very confident. He knew who he was. He knew why he was here. He wasn't shy about that. He didn't pull any punches. He let people know, hey, here's why I was sent. And they made, they made decisions whether or not they were going to buy it or whether they were going to begin to follow him. But he knew who he was. And as he was nearing the end of his life, his disciples began to get very nervous and very upset that he would no longer be there with them. So they very much depended on that physical presence. They, they walked right behind him and they saw the miracles and they, grew, they drew great strength knowing that they were with Christ. But he knows he's about to go and, and, and they're beginning to feel abandoned. Wait, what are you doing? You can't leave. What are we supposed to do? This whole life that we have is built around you and now you're just going to leave? And he reassured them time and time again, yes, I will be gone, but fear not. My spirit will be with you. You're going to be okay. You're not going to be abandoned. You're not going to be left to yourself. You're going to have me in another form, but trust in the fact that I will be with you. And so that, I think, eased their minds a little bit, but he had to continually reassure them that I'm going to be there. Look in John chapter 14, beginning with me in verse 1. So in response to this fear that, hey, you're going to be taking off, what's going on here? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> so how can, we, how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's going to be good enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that, that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I speak not of my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Or at, at least believe in the evidence of the miracles themselves. 
Some very bold claims. As I said before, Jesus was very confident in who he was. He did not have to shy away or, or ease into it. He just laid it out. And, and look at what he says. He says, he not only knows the way, but he is the way. He not only knows the truth, but he is the truth. And not only knows the life, he is the life. And then the boldest claim yet that I think knocked them on their feet. I and the Father are one. Now that's something we take for granted today, right? Because we've read that numerous times throughout the Bible. We get that God and the Father are one. We've read through John chapter 1. We understand in the beginning and the whole thing, right? We get that. But back then, that was very startling. Wait a minute. You are saying that you and God are actually one? You're not just a representative. No, you're one. He says, yes, we are one. Now, let's take a look at what some of the thinking of the day was in terms of, of this, this presence with God, because that's really what Jesus is saying. I have a perfect presence with God. Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin here in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his glory. And I'm sorry, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, and today I'll become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he'll be my son. Or again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You'll, you have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And he also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, but you'll remain. They'll wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they'll be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did, did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? How much do you know about angels? Maybe a lot. Maybe a little. Maybe you've read a book. Maybe you've, you've you know, read the script. You, you did a study on angels, so you looked at all the verses about angels. To the Jewish Christians, they were widely believed. And understood from many of the scriptures that we've looked at going through the Old Testament. God had an army of angels 
that were in service to him all the time. And many times, as you read through the Old Testament, whenever they were getting involved with some kind of a, a conflict or a situation or a trial or, or whatever it might be, you typically see an angel of the Lord, right, stepped in, right? And so that's typically how God worked through the Old Testament. Hey, let me send an angel to go do my bidding, to be able to speak my, my words. And, and when you look through the Bible, it's as though they were always around. Like they weren't like, you know, way in the clouds and they had to like, you know, take an express train. They were just, they were just there like at the calling all the time interceding for God. I love this scripture. Just listen, Psalm 91 in verse 9. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Isn't that great? So that's saying, look, if you're really true to God, that no matter what might happen, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. I'll snap my fingers and the angel nearby will come and take care of you. I mean, that was widely believed and understood. Angels are commanded by God. They were commanded to lift up and guard Israel in all its ways. This is the scripture, by the way, that I just quoted, that, that Satan somewhat used in Luke 4 when he tempted Jesus. I mean, they were right there, and Jesus knew who they were, but so did Satan. He got it. Look, don't worry about it, Jesus. Jump off the cliff. You know an angel that God is going to dispatch will quickly come and swoop you up. I mean, it was just, they just got it. Daniel 2, great, great example. The angels shut the mouths of the lions. Numbers 22, Balaam fell Face down before what? An angel. In Acts 12, when Peter was led out of prison, what happened? He, he goes to the house of Mary. He, he knocks on the door. Rhoda, the servant, comes to the door. She opens the door. She shuts the door in his face. She goes back, and they all assumed it must be his angel. He's back in jail. And so this is just like part of regular life. The angels were very much in their midst, in their presence. They were highly respected but never to be worshipped. Right. Hebrews 1.14, where we concluded our reading, says that they were ministering spirits sent to serve us. And it was believed that, that the angels carried the prayers of people to God. Like when you prayed, this angel just brought it up somehow. That was just how things were done. And as much as angels were respected, Jesus was superior. Because he was to be worshipped. And the idea was to get the focus somewhat off the angels. And now begin to look at Jesus. And remember what the angels' role was. They were, the, they were to, to intercede for you and God. They were a bridge between God and, and mankind. Stephen understood that, that bridge to clearly be the access to God. In Acts 7, verse 53. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels. But you've not obeyed it. This was the beginning of his long speech saying, basically, you've really, go away, you've really missed it, this, this, this message from God that the angels brought you, you've disregarded. So, again, it was understood. The law was delivered and put into effect through angels. Amen. They brought the message. They bridged the gap. They established a relationship, although it wasn't a close one. Because the angels had their limitations as well. Jesus would be the one that intercedes. He would be the ultimate bridge. The glory that, that Jesus acts 
is, 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 is or the, the, uh, the glory is, rather, that Jesus acts not as an agent. All right, so he's not simply delivering the message from somebody else, but he is the message. Amen. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Jesus speaks as God. The Bible says he was the exact representation of God. Same purpose as the angels, to connect us to God. But in a way, the angels never could, were never even designed to. He was the Son, far superior. The law made us aware of sin, right? We know that. Jesus is the only one that was able to remove it. The angels could do a really good job saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Jesus says, I'll fix that, I'll fix that, I'll fix that. The only one that could possibly do that. The amazing, amazing, amazing power that we have in knowing Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at this just a little bit further. In verse 1. Here's where it gets important for us. All right, So we get the angels. We know what they were for. Now we understand more about what Jesus is for and how he is above the angels. But listen to this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now think about it. If the angel message was important and binding, like you couldn't disregard it. Okay, if God sent an angel to tell you something, you know, that was something that you just, you could not just walk away from that. How much more important is the son's message? Because again, Jesus is not an agent of God as the angels were. Jesus is God. Amen. That is the message. You can't ignore it. You can't minimize it. You can't escape it. Drifting away is the greatest danger that we face. I'm really, quite honestly, not afraid of anything the world throws at us. We've got, you know, we've got all kinds of crises in our, in our lives every single day. 2020 has taught us that. It's one after another, after another, after another. To be really honest with you, I don't fear any of them. And maybe you don't either. Amen. The one thing I fear is what if I get caught in a crisis and I do not have a relationship with God? What if I walk away from this whole thing and I say, you know what? Forget this. I don't want the Bible. I don't want Jesus. I don't want God. I don't want any of you. I'm going to go off and just live my life. You know, I'm good. I can deal with it. And then a crisis hits. Do you know how many millions of people right now are in that position they are sitting there completely engulfed in crisis and they don't have the foundation in christ that we have what a sad thing that's why we share our faith that's why we preach the word that's why we we do what we do as christians but the writer of hebrews says look do not drift away pay close attention to that message drifting away and sometimes it's very subtle is very dangerous you find yourself on the outside pretty quickly when, when drifting away is unchecked. 
So we've got to be careful. The reason God gave us Jesus is because he loves us so much. He gives us a chance, an opportunity to be with him. Our well-being is very important to God. You see this really clearly in the next little part of the text. So we're still in Hebrews 2. See, we're having a full-on sermon today. This isn't like a little sermonion because we haven't done this in a while. So I hope you're good with that. All right, let's go on a little further now. This is in chapter 2, verse 5. It's not to the angels that he subjected the world to come about which we're speaking, but there's a place where, where someone has testified, what's mankind that you're mindful of them? Uh, a son of man that you care for him. By the way, this particular son of man is not Jesus. This is, this is not deity. It's, it's all of us, just so you're, you're clear with that. A son of man that you care for him. You've made them a little lower than the angels. You crown them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Them being us, really, mankind. It's, 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 it's God's intent for the whole world. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. Let's talk about that. That place where someone testified is actually Psalm chapter 8. And, and, it, and it, it details what God planned for mankind and how much God desires to, to hold us up and, and, and how much God wanted from the start all of our lives to be glorified and to be glorious. Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, is not about Christ. It's about us. It's our place in, in God's creation, in God's world. And God made us just a little bit lower than those angels just below the very extension of God Almighty himself, crowned with glory and with honor, destined to have everything under our feet. In the Psalm 8 version, it says, to be a ruler over all the works of God's hand. And look around. I mean, God did some amazing things. There's creation. There's, there's things flying by. There's things crawling on the ground. There's things landing on our arms. I mean, it's just it's amazing what God has done. He's done so much. Destined to have all of that. But what does that mean? Does that mean that, that we get to boss the animals around? That we can eat whatever we want? That we can go wherever we want? We can do whatever we want? Are we like, so because God created us just a little lower than the angels and, and everything is under our feet, does that mean that, that we're the boss of everything? That's a really important question, right? Are we the boss of everything? I remember when my kids were younger, when Fiona was a toddler, and, you know, she's got brothers that are 9 and 12 years older. And so they took it upon themselves to be the boss of Fiona. And she would continually come up to me, and she goes, are they the boss of me? And I would say, no, honey, don't, don't worry about that, because I'm the boss of everything. And she'd be okay with that. She would walk away. <laughs> yeah, in a sense... We are made in the image of God. We may not physically look like God. We all look differently. That would be pretty amazing, right? But, but we are in God's image. But it goes way beyond that. What sets us above and apart from all the other created things is not our speed, our agility, our strength. Okay, there are created things way more agile, stronger, 
and faster than we are. But it's our minds. It's what God has put up here. It's the ability to reason through things and, and make right decisions and choices. We have, we have a freedom of choice, okay? God doesn't say, you must do this. He says, this is what you should do. If you're smart, you're going to listen. That's God's design for us. That was from the beginning. God did not write sin into the script. Adam and Eve were given a choice. Everything at the time of creation was, was under them, was subject to them, including decisions and choices. In choosing wrong, a big part of their lives were lost. And thus a big part of our lives as well. And after the fall of Adam and Eve, their perfect lives were marked with fear and insecurity and deceit and pain. And worst of all, it began a separation from God. And ultimately, they were kicked out of the garden on their own. All things at one time were subject to them. But because of sin, it was gone. And this is exactly what that Hebrew writer saw in chapter 2. Just to reiterate verse 8, it says, Left nothing that's not been subject to them, yet at the present time, we don't see that. Why is that? It's not just for Adam, for Eve, but for all of us. God left nothing that is not subject to us as humans. But for the same reasons, mankind does not have it. We don't live in a world right now where, where, where mankind is, is, you know, is, is in this place where, where all things are subject to us. We don't see it. What a sad sight. Instead of being kings, as we were destined to be, we're slaves. Instead of being subject uh, to us, we're slaves to, to defeat and frustration and fear and discouragement and apathy and bitterness. All the ravages of sin, lives bound for glory, falling apart. Look around the world. That's where the world has ended up. It's not the way God designed it to be. All things are not subject to us anymore. We're just, we're just on the ground somewhere. But fortunately, God sees that as well. And God saw that when it first began. And he gave us something else to look to. And it all has to do with who Jesus is. Listen carefully as we close this out. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 9. But we do see Jesus. Yeah, we see everything going on around us. We see the, the, the state of our world and, and how, how much has been lost from what God destined for us. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through all everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to, be called, to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children that God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, 
so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by death and the fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants comes right down to you and I. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You know, one of the most awesome things about Jesus is his humanity. Made to be like us, a brother, totally relatable, even for a time, a little lower than the angels, just like us. We can relate with Jesus, but more important than that, he can relate with us. I think that's pretty awesome. He rose above his suffering to be crowned with glory. And he's here to help us, whoever should listen, whoever should make a decision, that's what I want. To rise above their suffering and be crowned with glory, that's the plan. Jesus was here to recover man's lost glory. We'd never have a chance for that crown of glory until the sin was gone. That's what got Adam and Eve in trouble. God knew that, Jesus knew that, and the cross would take care of it. So, why did God give us Jesus? Who is this Jesus? There's no other way to restore the glory that God intended for us. The glory that was destroyed by sin. The prophets couldn't do it. The angels couldn't do it. Only the cross of Christ could do it. Jesus is perfect for us. He is the way to glory. Who is this Jesus? He's the way to glory. We've got to pay attention. Such a great salvation cannot be ignored. And over the next several months, we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Amen. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcasts.